0: Has anyone here noticed that 2020, the year 2020 has been quite unusual so far? A little abnormal, right? Um, There is the COVID-19 situation where people are getting sick and people are dying from this virus. Not only that, but there's been the economic fallout with all the steps taken by federal, state, and local governments to seek to mitigate issues surrounding COVID-19. There is civil unrest in many cities across our nation. And just a sense that there is a deepening divide in our world. In light of all of this, I should say, and we haven't even gotten to the presidential election coming up, In light of all of this, as Christians, we ought to be asking ourselves and asking one another, how do we live as faithful Christians right now? How do we live in light of all that's going on? Well, I should say, how do we live in a world with all that's going on in light of who Christ is, his claims, what he's accomplished, and his claims upon our lives? How should we live in an increasingly secular world, an age full of deceit and lies? How do we live faithfully and serve our king faithfully and bear fruit for his glory? And I just want to say, you know, God is up to something right now. in all that is going on, if you read the Bible, if you just open up the Bible and read about anywhere, you see that God is not sitting on his hands just watching things passively, passively watching things happen. And God is not frazzled with his hair disheveled, wondering, he doesn't have hair, but you know what I mean, wondering what the heck is going on? How is this happening? God is up to something. God wants to get our attention. God wants to get the attention of the world. He wants to help us to be faithful and live for him. No matter what. All the way to the end of our lives. All the way to the end of our lives. And I think our text this morning is a great help for us. Let me read Hebrews chapter 13. We don't have bulletins this morning, so... You can open up your Bibles if you have one with you or get on your phone and go to Hebrews 13, verses 10 to 14. Here's what it says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is God's word. There's an old hymn written by Isaac Watts called Am I a Soldier of the Cross? There's a verse in it that says this, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? This communicates two opposing visions of the Christian life. One sounds really good. But it's deadly and dead wrong. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? That sounds so good. Who doesn't want that? But it's deadly because it's not the Christian life and it's dead wrong. The other sounds kind of daunting but is glorious and gloriously right while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. That's the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Fighting to win the prize and sailing through bloody seas. Our Lord Jesus did not say, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of green pastures. He said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What do wolves do to sheep? Kids, everyone here knows this, right? They eat them, or they try to, Our Lord did not say, in this world you will have ease and comfort and security and more ease and more comfort and more security. No, he said, in this world you will have trouble, tribulation, trials, difficulty. Jesus did not say, hey, everyone liked me and everyone's going to like you too if you follow me. No, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And since you are not of the world, it will hate you. Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if everyone speaks well of you and everyone likes you. But actually, he said, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you and everyone likes you. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name's sake and for righteousness' sake. Jesus described the Christian life this way. He says, "Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me." And for those who heard Jesus first say this or any any time in the first few centuries of first few centuries AD, they would have heard Jesus talk about the cross and they would have understood that as an instrument of execution. This wasn't a nice phrase to put on a coffee mug. Deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me was to follow Christ, dying to yourself, saying I'm, I no longer belong to myself, I'm now his. He is Lord, he is master. Luke chapter 9 actually adds the word daily, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me, so it's a daily thing, something we do every single day. And Jesus described the Christian life elsewhere as the road being narrow and hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. He said, on the other hand, the road is broad and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Now, you and I need to be reminded of these things because we live in a world that it's so easy to be tempted and just give in to more ease, more comfort. What can I do to make my life easier? And there's a, there's a place for that. I mean, to make life, more, make things more efficient, all of that. But it can be such an idol in our culture. Ease, comfort, luxury, security on all sides. This text here this morning helps us in this way. It really helps us understand what Jesus is calling us to and what Jesus is saying to us today. There's one command and it's the main point. The main point is in verse 13 and verses 12 and 14, really verses 10 to 12 and verse 14 support that main point and it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. The command is this. Move toward risk and sacrifice, and need, and suffering, and love with Jesus rather than ease, and comfort, and compromise. It seems like the entire book of Hebrews can be summed up in these five verses. The book of Hebrews tells us over and over again to look to Jesus, to look to Christ and what he has done as our high priest, our perfect high priest. Remember, under under the old covenant, the high priest would go into the holy place, well, into the holiest place once a year, but the the other priests would do their washings on a daily basis, their sacrifices, all to try to deal with sin. Jesus, as our perfect high priest, put an end to the old high priest system by his one sacrifice to take away sin for all time. And so the book of Hebrews keeps telling us, look to Christ, he is a sufficient, perfect high priest who made one sacrifice for sin to put away sin forever. The book of Hebrews also constantly is pointing us forward to our future hope, Over and over again, looking forward to this city, to this eternal reward. Over and over again, we see this. And it tells us to live our lives in in light of both of these. Looking to Jesus, the perfection of his sacrifice, looking forward to this eternal reward. Now, live in light of those realities. And that's what this text is telling us. Because of what Christ has done, It's finished, right? He is a perfect high priest, able to save to the uttermost. Well, I should say what he's done and is doing now because he's interceding for us now. What What he's done and is doing as our high priest and this future that is so amazing, it's beyond our wildest dreams. Live lives of fidelity and faithfulness to your Lord and King now. Verse 13 is telling us to choose the way of sacrificial, risk-taking love rather than comfort-seeking, security-ensuring, self-preservation. In other words, choose the fight choose to sail through the bloody seas rather than the flowery beds of ease. At some point, those who insist on flowery beds of ease will compromise their allegiance to Christ, no doubt. It will happen. The devil paves the road of ease with all kinds of reasonable explanations and plausible reasons to stay there. And he can even use Bible passages to do it. He's a liar. Richard Wernbrand wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. There's a movie that came out last year. I, I just watched it last Tuesday night. I highly recommend it. If you have Amazon Prime, it's part of the subscription. You can watch it without paying additionally. Watch it this week. It had been a while since I read the book, so I, was, I couldn't remember exactly how accurate the movie was, but there's one part in the movie I remember from the book. And it's a scene, the Communist Party had rolled into Romania, which, which is where Richard Vernbrand was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And there was this gathering of all these church leaders. It was like a congress of church leaders, hundreds of church leaders. And someone from the Communist Party And one of the, probably a bishop or something like that, were standing up on stage and they were talking about how the two could work together. The Communist Party and the church and Richard Wurmbrand and his wife are sitting there wondering, what is going on here? And at one point, his wife Sabina turns to him and says, what are you going to (laughs) say? Could you imagine if your wife turned to you and said that? Praise God for her. He said, if I say anything, you'll have no husband. And her response was amazing. Because one after one, church leaders compromising. They wanted flowery beds of ease. Who doesn't? According to our flesh. He turn, his wife turns to him and says, I would rather have no husband than a coward for one. Amen? Amen. And so the main point of verse 13, the main point of our passage, may be one of the main points of the entire book of Hebrews because these were suffering Christians, tempted to give up, tempted to go back to Judaism, tempted to just take the easy path because they were suffering. So the main point of our text, verse 13, is Christian, if you're a Christian, it's talking to you. Christian, choose the Calvary Road with Jesus, which is a road of risk and some suffering at some point in some way and sacrifice and love rather than the road of security and ease and self-preservation. And then verses 12 and 14, which sandwich verse 13, of course, are two supports or reasons for living this way. And they're really strong reasons. I think this passage is extremely relevant for the day in which we live. So let's go ahead and look at these verses here in Hebrews 13. I want you to see in the text why I've introduced the text the way that I have. I want you to see it in the passage. So the main point is choose, this is you as a Christian, choose to walk with Jesus on the road of sacrifice and suffering and reproach. That's the word that's used in verse 13, reproach. Verse 13 says this, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let us go to him, Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So let us go outside the camp. That's our path. It's described as outside the camp. Outside of what is familiar and comfortable. Outside of what is easy and the path of least resistance. Let us go to him outside the camp. Who's the hymn? Jesus. That's where he's at. That's where he is. When Richard Verbrand decided to get up and speak before that Congress of Ministers and began saying, We are spitting in the face of Christ, he was going to meet Jesus outside the camp. We were to go to him outside the camp. Jesus is outside the camp. Listen to what Jesus said in John 12:24 to 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world keeps it to eternal life. Now listen to this, listen to this connection Jesus makes. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Where's Jesus? Outside the camp. Where do his servants go? Outside the camp to him. Choosing to die. Whoever loves his life, loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world, keeps it to eternal life. So we're to go to Jesus outside the camp and we are to bear the reproach he endured. Reproach. This word means to be denounced or insulted. It's kind of a general word, insulted, reviled. Certainly can include more than that, worse than that, but usually it's used to speak of verbal assault. Isaiah 53, verse three, this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. It says that, he was despised and rejected. He was reviled. He was hated. People looked at him and said, Ew, Ugh. what's wrong with him? This, of course, is what the New Testament church experienced. Do you ever read through the book of Acts? I, I've done this before. I do this often. I think, man, to live in those days would have been amazing. The spirit is coming down. The gospel is spreading like wildfire. People are being saved by, the score, by scores. But then it's like, wait a second, but there's also, there's another side. The New Testament church, there was all of that. But we can have kind of this nostalgic idea of what it was like to be living in the first century—one of those members of the church at Ephesus or something. Those new believers, like one of those witch doctors that brought your books into the city square and burned them—that would have been amazing. But you know what else happened in Ephesus? There was a riot, and Paul was almost killed, and the, the believers were chased from city to city. I love. There's. This, I think it's at the end of chapter thirteen where it says that they were chased to the the edges of that region and it says the disciples, they wiped the dust off their feet as a testimony against them and kept going in joy and in the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Outside the camp with Jesus. The the New Testament church was... God did amazing things. Praise God. We see, we love this. But it was also it, it, side by side with difficulty, hostility, revilings, reproaches, sufferings, martyrdom, all of that. In Acts chapter 5, after uh, some of the disciples got arrested. It says that they were warned again not to preach Jesus and they were also given a little more incentive they they got the tar beat out of them they were they were beaten with probably with rods or you know or given 39 lashes or something they were beaten badly and it says that they left the Jewish leaders presence you know what they were doing rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That is so bizarre and amazing. First Peter chapter four, verse 14. Says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. If you're insulted for Jesus, you're blessed because it shows that his spirit is upon you. Insulted for Jesus, of course, not, not just insulted because you're a jerk. <laughs> insulted for Jesus. There's this, uh, you know, the, the, the Luke's account of the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about blessed are you when you're persecuted and and they revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you, he says rejoice, and then it says, and dance for joy in that day. This thought came to mind last night when I was thinking about these things. Um, What happened to John the Baptist when he told Herod, you cannot have your brother's wife. That's wrong. God says that's wrong. His head was lopped off. Now why on earth would anyone want to choose that possibility? <laughs> Any of those things. Just insults. Why would, you wanna, why would you choose that? Why would anyone in their right mind choose that. If verse 13 is all we had, we would think, I'm not sure I signed up for the right thing here. That's not all we have. We have verses 12 and 14 as well and the whole book of Hebrews. But verses 12 and 14 give us two reasons why as Christians we choose this. We're to choose this Reason number one has to do with the death of Christ. It's verse 12 and verse 11. Verse 12 gives it to us. Verse 11 helps to support it. The first reasons in verse 12 has to do with the sacrificial death of Jesus. Verse 12 says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And then verse 13 says, therefore, so it points us back to verse 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Notice this verse tells us how Jesus died and why Jesus died. How Jesus, his sacrificial, how he died sacrificially and why he died in this way. How did Jesus die? It tells us he died outside the gate, outside the city of Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus was marched up the hill of Calvary or the hill of Golgotha and was crucified. Verse 11 helps us to understand the point, gives us a little bit of context by taking us back to the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant system of sacrifices, the, the, the priest would bring the sacrifice into the holy place. He would slay the animal. The blood would be used to, as an offering, for sins and sprinkled on the altar and the carcass of the animal would be taken out when there was a tabernacle in the wilderness outside the camp when it was the temple in Jerusalem would be taken outside the city and burned. This was in order to ensure that there was nothing that remained that would defile the offering to God. A pure offering to deal with sin. Sin. So that our text points us, points us out, shows us that the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings were ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. He is the all-time sacrifice for our sins. But there's some, there's some things that are significant about this happening, about it mentioning that Jesus suffered outside the camp. First of all, it shows us the kind of savior Jesus is. He is a savior not of Jews alone, but of all nations Jesus suffered outside Jerusalem he is a savior of the whole world he is a savior of Jew and Gentile alike and that's why Jesus's great commission is go and make disciples of all nations all nations all ethnic groups not all geographical countries but all ethnic groups all ethno is the Greek word All ethnicities, make disciples of all of them. He is a savior of the entire world, of Jew and Gentile. In addition to that, it's also significant for our worship. The fact that Jesus suffered outside the camp, outside Jerusalem, fundamentally changes how we worship. It's not about gathering to Jerusalem, it's not about gathering to a physical temple. Worship now centers around gathering to Christ himself. Gathering to the Lord Jesus. But I think the main point the author seeks to draw out is the significance of the scandal of Christ's death. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know, when we talk about the cross, it can just blow right past us and we don't feel the scandal of the cross. The fact that Jesus suffered outside the camp and we are to go out there and bear his reproach, much of the reproach we're to bear is the fact that our Savior is a crucified and risen Savior. Not one person looking on there at Golgotha or at Calvary would have looked at that and said, this is a beautiful sight. If you had been there, you would have been tearing your clothes and pulling your hair out. It's horrific. No one thought, that is heroic. That guy's a hero. And yet, on this side of the cross, because we know the purposes of God and what Christ accomplished, we know that it is glorious. And yet, we live in a world that think it is utterly foolish and nonsense. As Christians, we say that Christ's tortuous death is for our life. For those who don't believe, the cross is only an idiotic thing. There's a guy that I interact with, with some regularity, it's, usually it kinda goes in spurts, and we talk in person sometimes, he sends me emails other times, and almost every time we talk, he tells me how stupid and foolish the cross is. Of course it is to those who are lost. That's what Paul says. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word foolishness, it's the, the, the Greek word moronos. It's where we get the idea of moron. It's moronic, it's idiotic, it's stupid, it's pathetic. But, Paul says, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus suffered outside the camp in a trash heap up on Golgotha for our sins. Verse 12 also tells us why Christ died and it tells us that he died in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, in order to sanctify the people through his blood. The people, people being talked about here, it's not every person in the entire world, it's the, the people refers to his people, his chosen people, those who come to God through Jesus Christ, and he sanctified them through his own blood. The word sanctify means to be set apart for a holy purpose, or more specifically, set apart for God's holy purpose. Jesus suffered outside the camp to set us apart for God's holy purpose to make us different. You know, there's this um, song that we sang in the church I grew up in. And I think it was the King James version of 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And it said, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then it said this, a peculiar people. A people set apart and they're different. Do You know what Jesus sanctified us for? Choosing to walk on the narrow road rather than the broad path. Think about this. In the New Testament, believers are called over and over again. They're called saints, right? We're called saints. And this ought to stun us. We know ourselves at all. We're called saints, holy ones, It's more than just a static designation, like hey, you're a saint, oh nice, great, thanks. It's more than that. We ought to look at one another and offer to God our lives and say, we are your chosen sanctified people who exist for you. To be a saint means that we're set apart, that we belong to God now. We do not belong to ourselves any longer. We belong to him. We are his. And we offer ourselves to him. We are no longer our own. Romans 4, 6. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. We belong to Christ. So putting verses 12 and 13 together, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. Through his own blood, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's another reason we're given, though. It's in verse 14. And it has to do with our future. This amazing future that we have. Maybe you've heard of the idea of delayed gratification. Ever heard of that before? It's not quite like that because we have Jesus now. We do. So there is wonderful gratification now with Christ, in Christ, that belongs to all of his people. But there is such a temptation, isn't there, to seek to build paradise here rather than crave and love the paradise that awaits us in the future. That's what the author draws out. He, verse, verse 14 says this, What's the reason for going to Jesus outside the camp? Verse 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come. We seek the city that is to come. What reason we are given here for living a radical, sacrificial life of taking risk and loving others rather than seeking comfort and ease and a pain-free life is that there is a paradise that awaits us And there's no paradise here. It's not here. Here we have no lasting city. We have no lasting city. But we seek the city to come. Do you love the city to come? Do you even think about it? Is it on your mind? That's what will enable you. That's what will create and sustain a life choosing risk and sacrifice instead of ease and comfort. Loving the city to come. A love for the city to come. The word seek carries with it the idea of craving. To crave paradise. We crave the paradise that awaits us in the future and we seek it but there's the other side too here we have no lasting city and I think I think with this you you can hear the words of Jesus remember when he says whoever loves his life loses it whoever loves his life here and seeks to make it all about here and now and creating a kingdom or a paradise right now. Whoever loves, if that's how you live, you're going to lose it anyways. Jim Elliott, in his diaries, you guys know the name Jim Elliott. He was one of five missionaries that that were speared to death in Ecuador. He has this beautiful saying that... um, Probably, probably what he's known for more than anything in terms of what's in his, written in his diary. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That's this idea. Who gives what he can't keep. Life right now in order to gain what he can't lose. Paradise in the future. Why do I keep using the word paradise? It's because it's in the Bible. Revelation 2 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now we've seen this pattern several times where we choose, in in the book of Hebrews, of choosing to live a certain way now because of future reward. We've seen this several times here in Hebrews. Let me just remind you of a few of the times we've seen this Hebrews chapter 10 verses 32 to 34 This is the author reminding these believers of their own experience of this He says recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being part, you were partners with those so treated For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And then he tells us why. Because you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. They chose, they chose to love those in prison, other Christians in prison, knowing that it would cost them. And it did cost them. And they accepted it joyfully because they were looking forward to the reward. Remember Moses in chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, where it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, choosing, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, Than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Chapter 12, verse 2, this is talking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus chose, chose, because of what was before him. Verse 2 of chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And chapter 13, verses five and six, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, our Lord has said, I will never leave you and forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Beloved brothers and sisters, do we know This future that awaits us. There's a a Puritan, there was a Puritan named Richard Baxter. He's in heaven now. And he wrote a whole bunch of books, but one of his books that is just a gem is called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And in the book, he expounds from scripture the glories of heaven and eternal life. And in the book, I can't remember the the specific amount of time he suggests or commends, but but he commends that believers in Christ commit to meditating on heaven every day. That would be a good practice to take up. Give us a love for this reward, this city that awaits us. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is calling us to go outside the camp. Jesus is calling you and I, come with me, come to me, outside the camp, on the Calvary Road. Come to me at Golgotha. Come to me on the road of sacrifice and risk and love. Get off the road of ease and comfort and your, and. and Mine too, our love affair with security and get on the road with Jesus. What an invitation he gives us. What a glorious invitation. This is where Jesus is, on the road of risk and sacrificial love. Now, what does this look like? practically what does this look like well it's probably going to look different for each one of us what is what is Christ calling us to what is Christ calling you to what specifically does going outside the camp mean for you and for me for some it might mean making a tough phone call you've been putting off for a long time for some it might mean going to your neighbor and talking to them about Christ I have no doubt that this passage in the history of the church has been used many times to stir up people to missions work. No doubt. Maybe there's some kids here today. Maybe one, two, five. And God is planting a seed right now for work in the mission field. What does it mean to go to Christ outside the camp? What does it mean to bear his reproach. No doubt it for sure means that we worship Jesus, we pledge our allegiance to him, no matter what. It means that for all of us. Come hell or high water. Right? I, I, I never thought I would be, I never thought in America churches would not be allowed to meet. Or to sing. That's, Strange. But we love Christ. And we plead, we're not scofflaws, I don't mean that, but we, we pledge our allegiance to Christ. He has our hearts. No doubt it also means to bear his reproach in bearing witness to him, to those who don't yet know him. If you and I are yielded to the Lord and we seek him, I have no doubt he will make it clear what going to him outside the camp means. One thing is for sure. The Lord Jesus is calling us to revolt against the status quo. How easy would it have been for Moses to say, I might be useful here in Egypt as Pharaoh's son. And I got everything else too. Let's go with that for a while. (laughs) But he chose not to. He chose not to. We're called to revolt against the status quo. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. C.T. Studd, who was a missionary, to India, Africa, China. I think, he, I think he, his last uh, stint was in, I think he died in Africa. He has a poem that, um, it's a long poem, but the refrain that the, each verse ends with this statement, one life to live will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last And then at the very end, and I heard maybe somebody else added this, I'm not sure if it was Stud or somebody else, but it says this, and when my last breath, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my light has been burned out for thee. I mean, isn't that how we want to live for Jesus? We have no lasting city here. We seek the city that is to come. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.